0: Brit. Brad and Brit. The perfect combination of and wit. Politics, sports, and shit. Let's
1: tune into Brad and Brit. Hey, it's the Brad and Brit cast. It's our first one for this week. We thank you if you're with us live here in the 1:30 hour Eastern Time, or you're going video with us. Uh we've got Joe Killian with us, a great reporter, long time North Carolina a superstar reporter first with the news and record. And then he decided that the a wonderful world of daily newspapering that he had done everything you could possibly do. And he moved on to North Carolina policy watch and your, your investigative work, frankly, to me, to me is the best in this state that I see on a regular basis. And, and, uh, we're, we're honored to have you on Joe. Thank you well, so thanks. much.
0: It's great, kind of you.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, uh, uh, a piece ran in the news and record on Sunday that you had written for, uh, for North Carolina Policy Watch uh, a week or so ago that kind of uh, uh, adds on to not just the, the, the national movement, but certainly one in this state of uh, Republican control, Republican undermining of institutions, all kinds of cute, clever ways they have of doing it. And we've seen with the University of North Carolina system, uh, all kinds of moves recently. And and we haven't even gotten to the uh, Nicole Hannah Jones story, which is it's there's a there's a parallel to it, we can get to that in a second here. But tell folks who Eric Mueller is, and why you spent time uh, uh, writing about what is happening to him. Who is Eric Mueller?
0: Sure. Uh, Well, Eric Mueller is a a law school professor at uh, UNC Chapel Hill. He is uh, renowned and well-regarded for his law expertise and constitutional law and many other things. And uh, he is also the uh, current, I believe, yeah, for a couple more days anyway, uh, he's the current Chair of the UNC Press, and for people who don't know, UNC Press is the the, the press through which the university system uh, publishes uh, books and uh, all sorts of scholarly works. And uh, he's been he's been on the on that press board for uh, two terms, uh, and and he's in two terms as chairman. He was recently uh, reelected unanimously as chairman, but all. Appointments to that board run through the UNC Board of Governors. The UNC Board of Governors is a politically appointed body. The majority in the North Carolina General Assembly, which right now is Republican, uh, chooses the seats on the UNC Board of Governors. Uh, Eric Muller uh, could not get a vote uh, on his uh, reappointment to that to that board. They they actually wrote back to uh, Chancellor Kevin Guskowitz at uh, UNC Chapel Hill and said, "Select someone else, but not Eric Muller." Um, and the, we did some reporting and found that, uh, you know, the reason behind this is that at least according to our sources who are, we have to acknowledge, uh, was that Eric Muller has been critical of some of the moves of the UNC board of governors, including the handling of the silent Sam Confederate monument, uh, debacle and, uh, ensuing legal fight. Uh, he was, he was very open during that, that he thought that the deal that the UNC system made with the sons of Confederate veterans, uh, was illegal, wouldn't hold up to legal scrutiny. It didn't, it was invalidated, uh, by the same judge who signed it. Um, and he, you know, he's had some criticisms for, for how they've run the UNC system and, and, uh, and particularly legal matters uh, in the system, which is his area of expertise. So another, uh, person on the board was going into their third term and they were, Reappointed, so uh, the the explanation that came was, well, we're trying to shake up uh, membership on the on these uh, boards and not have people serve as long, which is sort of on its face doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, some people <laughs> were, were heard to remark when uh, somebody who's served just as long was reappointed. Uh, to the board, but, but not Eric Muller.
1: But this is not a a, a partisan position. Per se, I mean, if I'm if I'm correct in my perception of what the North Carolina press, so UNC press is, whenever you watch cable news and you see the expert who is uh, from Harvard or Carolina, the Carolina person becomes prominent because the press, you know, got their name out there. They got things published, <laughs> so that's their job. It isn't to push a particular agenda, is it? Which makes it even more ridiculous that uh, that Mueller's getting tossed here. And not only that, it it looks like they're, they're playing this passive aggressive game. Like they've done with, uh, with Miss Jones. Uh, We can't get a vote. We can't figure out how to vote. Uh, We'll get around to it. And and, and this is a game. I think that's being played here. It's being played all over the country. This is what they do. Are they expecting Eric Mueller to just resign? What do they say? What do they want him to do?
0: Well, he doesn't have to resign his, his, his appointment is up on a, a date certain. And I believe that's I believe that's in its month um, and they will need to reappoint someone and they've made it clear it won't be him. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they you know, is it a, a partisan position? That, that position is certainly not partisan, but um, when you have a politically appointed board that decides all of these things, then it's certainly within their power to make decisions for whatever reason it is that they want and not to justify them. And as you say, you know, it's, it's not uncommon if you follow North Carolina politics, really any politics, it happens at the national level. It's not uncommon for them to engineer a way for them to get the thing that they want without voting. So, you know, things disappear and they die in committee. You know, in, in this instance, appointments go through a committee process and they go up to the full board and the full board votes. Well, if they never get out of that committee process and it never goes to the full board, they never vote. Um, so if you make it clear that this person's name is a, is a no-go, it's not going to get out of committee, then nobody needs to be on the hook for tossing him. His, his, uh, appointment just expires and they're not willing to re-up and they're not willing to justify why. Um, And, you know, therefore some of them can argue, well, we didn't fire him. We didn't uh, remove him from the board. His his term ended and we, we went with somebody else
2: they sort of just let him wither on the on the vine as it were of course the university has been a sore point for conservatives in north carolina going back decades certainly in the 60s with the student protests jesse helms famously calling it the university of uh, negroes and communists many many years ago and there uh, pat mccrory also made the the university and some of these appointments very political as well so it's been something that conservatives have tried to get their hands on and to make more and more political and to make steer a direction more toward the right if you will and this seems to fit into that this is what your source said he recently talking about Mueller, has been outspoken on the nicole hannah jones tenure issue in his role on the faculty executive committee at chapel hill the decision was already made to get rid of him by then but this is the kind of thing they don't want someone in the unc press role speaking out about just strip him of that and he'll either learn to shut up or the next person in that position will think twice about speaking out against them. So this is about really silencing criticism, right,
0: Joe? I mean, I certainly, that's the way that that person sees it. And I think that Eric Mueller's feeling that way as well. Um, You know, I mean, (laughs) what's really, what we're really talking about here is, is, is this project, I'm sorry, is this, um, you know, particular appointment and and are these uh, boards subject to political realities that other things to, to which other things are subject. So, uh, you know, and, and that goes from the top down, right? I mean, if the, if the North Carolina General Assembly chooses all of the members of the Board of Governors and we had for years <laughs> a Board of Governors that had not a single Democrat on it, uh, and now we have a board that has one Democrat on it, it's a, a Democrat who has sided with Republicans so often as a lawmaker that he lost his uh, Democratic primary for his seat and is out of office now and sort of reviled by a lot of Democrats in the area that he, he served. Um, You know, that doesn't happen by accident. You know, you can't accidentally appoint all the people on the board as being a member of a certain party or, or unaffiliated, but with close ties to the political right. Um, That is a, that is a strategy. And the board of governors and, well, it used to be that the board of governors and the governor would appoint members of boards of trustees of individual universities. They changed that to take the governor completely out of the process when Pat McCrory, Republican, lost uh, the governor's mansion last time and a Democrat was coming in. So now it's just Republicans who are doing that. So these boards look more male, more white, more conservative than any of these campuses are. Um, and that, that is also not an accident. And so um, what we're seeing now is it's sort of going down another level, right? I mean, the 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 politics has been obvious and documentable uh, at these higher levels for years, and we've all written about it. I've written about it. The Newsom Server's written about it. The Chronicle of Higher Education has written about it. It's been written about to death. Everybody knows that's a political reality at the top levels. What we're talking about now are smaller boards. We're talking about boards of trustees. We're talking about the UNC press board. We're talking about who gets tenure and who doesn't. Should those things be political? Well, I mean, there are some people who feel, I mean, when you look at the makeup of the UNC board of governors, there are a lot of former Republican lawmakers. There are a lot of former former and current uh, Republican lobbyists. There are people who make their living in politics and their feeling is why in the world would we have people in these positions of authority, uh, you know, even if it's just chair of the UNC press, you know, board of governors, which most people don't have any sense of what they do, but why would we have anybody in a position like that who criticizes us, who's, you know, some threat to us, you know, why why give them any position from which to, to criticize us? If, you know, if there's not somebody who's on the team who can be in that position, why have that position? Um, That is a, that is a way of looking at it. I mean, you know, there, there are members of the board of governors who will tell you themselves and tell you on the record, you know what? we're in charge. Republicans won, uh, you know, and therefore, yeah, we're exercising our authority to bring all of these things that we control in line with our political philosophy. A lot of them don't think that's a bad thing the 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 university system should run more like a private business. The university system should eliminate things that are not, you know, that they don't think are directly tied to people getting jobs that, you know, the university system should be as cheap as possible. And that should be the number one thing. You know, I mean, it's, you know, there, there are a lot of sort of, political philosophy things to, to, to go through when you're deciding how to run a system. Right. So, so, Joe,
1: these folks who are making these decisions and, 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 and crushing the traditional soul of the university, pissing off faculty members and students alike, Not all of them. I'm sure, you know, there's always some who, this is a great idea. It's a long time coming. I've been a conservative here at UNC. I've had to shut up for 40. Now I finally get to be myself. There's always a few of those, Mm -hmm. and and I'm sure John Hood will find them and and write about them and and tell you how heroic they are. I get that. Uh, But if it were not for the UNC system, this state would be Alabama. Okay. We, we would be that state. And, yeah. and, and this has been, it's a cliche. It's been kind of the crown jewel. The fact that the University of North Carolina was the first state university in the country, right. that's, that is, to me, that's, that's kind of such a cool thing. And it, it's almost as if, again, they don't care. It doesn't mean anything. Oh, no, I disagree with that.
0: I disagree with that strongly. I think that they care a lot. I think that's why you're seeing this. But what they care about is creating a university system that is in line with their political philosophy. You know, I mean, that's the thing. You, You don't you don't make these sorts of efforts and you don't. Um, see these sorts of controversies if people don't care. If people don't care, things are fallow, things are boring. I was the higher education reporter for the news and record for uh, not very long, I think a little over a year. And I went to every single board of governors meeting when I when I did and, and it was boring. It was not exciting, it was you know, completely routine. Um, people who are motivated to make radical changes come onto the board and yeah, you, things get exciting real quick. Uh, people get tossed, people get pushed out. People are fighting amongst themselves. There are fights about political philosophy. Um, You know, I mean, what what you're looking at is, you know, the Republican Party has been in power in North Carolina for more than a decade. And you are seeing the fruits of what they've been very open about, which is, you know, we disagree with a lot of the way that. Things in the state are run, including the university system, and we would like to fundamentally change those things. And some of the things that they disagree with are sort of cornerstones of traditional academia, the tenure system, you know, appointments to boards like the board of trustees or the board of governors, things like that. What you will hear people say is, well, I have no interest in doing things the way that people yeah. traditionally did them. I don't I don't think that was working from their oh, from their political perspective. When I
1: say they don't care, what I mm. meant was that they don't care how anything was ever done in the past. We know the right way to do it. We want there to be a University of north carolina Hillsdale campus they want mm. they they wanted to 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 be run with a with a obvious political bias which they think somehow will balance off what happened for the first 200 and some years of of the universe. That was all wrong. How come, how come that wasn't fixed then? I, 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 that's really what I meant. Um, What does this mean for recruiting new talent to, to, to UNC? What does it, what does it mean for, for uh, uh, students who are applying? I mean, my, my kids are, are long gone from college, but, but I, I remember when they were applying to school, boy to get into carolina man that was the best uh-huh. the, the, that's a goal of so many people and and i'm i'm just wondering whether that's going to start to change and once that does i don't well, know how start, you get I mean, that back
0: forget to forget start to change we've we've already seen it i mean we have we've had just in the last couple of months, we've had people who the university was trying to recruit say, I'm not coming there. And here's why, you know, I'm upset about the Nicole Hannah-Jones situation. I don't like the way that the school handled this. I don't like the way the school handled that. And um, we've seen it. It's happened with multiple recruits. There are people who are leaving the university and citing this who are are already there. There are students who are deciding not to come. There are students who are deciding not to come back. Um, That that is already happening. Um, And the, um, the, I guess the thing you have to ask yourself is, how much does that matter? And you know, is that a bad thing? There are people, including members of the Board of Governors, who will say, if these people want to leave because they don't like the direction of the school or they don't like the decisions that we've made, let them leave. We don't want them here anyway. Um, you know, and uh, the, you know, there, there are a, a number of people at, the, at very high levels in the UNC system and, and the UNC Board of Governors who feel that there are too many tenured professors anyway. They want to leave, that's fine. If they don't like the way that we want to change the system, too bad. We're in charge. Um, so, yeah, I mean, is is it changing? Is is it is recruiting certain sorts of faculty going to be more difficult? Um, certainly recruiting black faculty, recruiting faculty who might want to publish things that are, are going to upset, uh, you know, vested political interests in the state. Absolutely. Um, I, I think they think that's a feature and not a bug.
2: Um, we were talking just a moment ago. It's a good time to pivot over to Nicole Hannah Jones and the controversy there at the University of North Carolina. This is a woman who works for the New York Times and was spearheading that 1619 project. She was extended and offered to teach at the Hussman School of Journalism and Media in the night chair in race and investigative journalism. Uh, she says now that she will not uh, go teach at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill unless she is offered tenure, and that has not been offered to her. And it is, in fact, has been strenuously sent. The message has been sent that she will be denied this, um, and this is part of the Eric Muller story. What you just said, Joe, is part of the fundamentalism of the university system that really that the, these folks are trying to tear down. Uh, the tenure system has been something that's been around for a long, long time, and now you have a group of folks that really just want to wreck it and say, "Well, why? Why is, why is tenure a good thing? Why do we need all these tenure folks?" And they're just putting a sledgehammer to all of that and. Apparently some of the things that uh, that Nicole Hannah Jones has done with the 1619 project has upset some conservatives who don't believe that we need to go back and take a look at the roots of racism and slavery in the United States and that seems to be where we are with that story right
0: well and it goes beyond the 1619 project I man I think a lot of people talk about the 1619 project but Nicole Hannah Jones is a UNC uh, graduate she got her master's at, uh, at UNC at the husband school and she um, what is now the husband's school. And she has had a 20 year <laughs> career. You know, she used to work at the News and Observer. She worked her way up to the New York Times. Um, she's won, you know, not just the Pulitzer that she won for the 1619 Project. Before that, she was a MacArthur Genius uh, Grant Award winner. She won the Peabody, she won the Polk Award. Um, you know, she's sort of done it all in, in our industry. And, and the, these night chairs are supposed to bring in media professionals into the academic setting. It's what they're designed to do. They uh, courted her for that. The former, the the previous night chairs at UNC going back to the early 80s have all been tenured. Uh, that was the assumption when she, uh, you know, started talking to them about the job. And we've really, nev- nobody can point to an instance that I've seen where it went through that strenuous Tenure process. There's a tenure committee. There's a departmental committee. There are people outside who weigh in. That she came in, guest taught classes. She had the support of the chancellor, the support of the provost. It goes all the way up to the BOT level, and they just didn't hold a vote. It just never got out of committee. And um, you know, there are people on the board who have said, you know, yeah, it was political. Uh, There are people who are saying, well, we're just not going to, we're not just going to be a rubber stamp. That's fine. Others say, don't rubber stamp it. Have the conversation and have a vote. But do your jobs, you know. Don't uh, you know? Kill this in committee quietly, and and you know, do it with uh, handshakes behind closed doors. This sounds like a filibuster to me. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, well,
0: I mean, it's, I, it's interesting because it's you know, for people who are, I, I'm not primarily a higher education reporter. I've done some of that in my career, but the bulk of my reporting career has been politics in some way, one way or another. Municipal politics, state politics. I've covered congressional races and conventions and things. And what you see here is stuff that's very, very common in politics making its way into academia. You know, I mean, the idea that you wouldn't have a vote, that it wouldn't happen, not that there would be a vote and, and she would lose it or, or you know, she wouldn't be given tenure, but that there just wouldn't be a vote, that quietly nobody would have to put themselves on record because it would never come to them. They don't have to have a conversation about her qualifications. They don't have to have a conversation about what, if anything, they object objected to in her application. It just never happens. That's something that happens constantly in Raleigh at the NCGA. It happens in Washington, you know, in the House and the Senate. Uh, You know, it even happens at the city council level sometimes. They just, you know, avoid a political fight by not having it and deciding these things behind closed doors. That's less common in academia. And as academia becomes more politicized, you know, you see this stuff more. But like I said, look at the people who are running the board of governors. Look at many of the people who are on boards of trustees. These are political people. These are former lawmakers. These are Mm -hmm. people who are current GOP lobbyists these are people who are political activists and so yeah yeah i mean this process gets politicized
2: and there are folks within the unc community who are now saying that this is just part of the systemic racism and the way that uh, people of color have been treated historically at the university of north carolina they see this as fitting into that narrative and they're protesting based on that and say that this sort of stuff just does not seem to happen uh to to folk to white folks in a lot of situations, Joe. So they as we are trying to examine systemic racism throughout society,
1: this is one more brick in the wall for these people. But they're proving the point. Yeah. The, the
0: point is being proven right in real time, isn't it? Well I think, you know, I, I do think that <laughs> does does this sort of thing, this exact sort of thing, happen to white people? Well Eric Muller is white, uh Gene Nickel is white. Uh you know, there are a number of people who are white who have been on the the, the receiving end of, uh, you know, political attacks or, you know, politicized decision making when it comes to the UNC system. But it, people absolutely have a point that there are, there's such a dearth of people who are tenured professors who are not white at UNC Chapel Hill, across the UNC system. They're also underrepresented on boards of trustees, underrepresented on the board of governors. They're underrepresented in the CGA. Um, and you know, and so, yeah, I mean you know it's it's very difficult not to see not to see something like this as part of that, particularly because the previous night chairs were white, and we didn't see conversations about you know needing there to be there needing to be extra checks on whether or not they they got tenure,
2: yeah, I don't know if the board of governors i don't know if their strongest argument is, hey, we're screwing white people too, I
0: don't know if that's well, I don't awesome. think they're making I don't think they're making that argument, but I certainly think they could, yeah, yeah I,
2: don't, I, don't I don't know well. if that, that's it, but that may be something they may go to at some point,
0: yeah, good, good luck. Uh, Joe, I want
1: to talk about, oh God, critical race theory, yeah. which, uh, as it's being presented by the right and Fox News and, and the usual suspects, is indoctrinating your children to feel guilty that they were born white because they or their ancestors have been oppressing black people for hundreds of years will not give them a chance. The system needs to be torn down, and uh, we need Karl Marx's great great grandson to uh, uh, run the country. It's a commie plot, which of course is a thousand miles away from what this is all about. It's a it's a theory that's been around, you know, for I guess forty years. Derek Bell of of Harvard, the professor, uh, wrote about it. And I don't think it's ever been a, a, an actual course. I don't recall. I mean, I went to college a long time ago. I don't think you guys, you're younger than me. There wasn't critical race theory 101, mm. no. but I find it really, really interesting and not coincidental
0: at all. That- yeah, well, you know, it's it, I mean, the the funny thing about all of this, the, the strange thing is that what is happening here in terms of strategy is, is being played out Publicly and pretty nakedly, um, there's a guy named uh, Christopher Chris Rufo, who's a, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute, and he, you know on March 15th, he publicly on Twitter tweeted the following thing uh, about the rights efforts uh, as regards critical race theory. He said, "We've successfully frozen their brand critical race theory." into the public conversation and are steadily driving up negative perceptions. We will eventually turn it toxic as we put all of the various cultural insanities under that brand category. The goal is to have the public read something crazy in the newspaper and immediately think critical race theory. Right. We have decodified the term and will re codify it to annex the entire range of cultural constructions that are unpopular with Americans. So, I mean, I, I, like that kind of candor. Um, you know, I, I, like it when, I like it when a lot of the people who are driving this stuff just say, here's what we're doing. Um, yeah, but but you see it all the time. I mean, I'm, I get a lot of calls and emails from readers. And, uh, my entire journalism career from when I started on very small dailies, uh, I have always been the kind of guy who's willing to talk to a reader about anything. I don't like people get screaming at me and cursing at me, but if they're willing to be reasonable, I'll talk to them at length about anything. And so I've had I don't know probably like a half a dozen people over the course of the last month or so call me up upset about critical race theory trying to sort of um, connect it up with nicole hannah jones and the 1619 project and the, the thing that i hear over and over again from them I, I say okay talk to me about why you're calling me and and they always say some version of i am just so afraid i am so scared and you and you know and then they'll they'll say angry but if you keep talking to them they'll say well what i'm really afraid of and you know so okay hold on I feel like a therapist a little bit but i'm like why did you say Scared? Why did you say afraid? What are you afraid of? And you know, I think these people have been very, very successful in making the the phrase critical race theory, which most of them don't understand, um, into a big boogeyman that that under which you can fit lots of things. And and they're fitting lots of things that the people who actually deal in critical race theory, you know, don't have anything to say about as well. Um, but you know, all sorts of very you know scary things for people who are on the right, people who see. Sort of the nation or the culture changing, and are afraid of uh, of how that's going. They they need you know a, a, a thing. Well, they don't need one, but they're being provided one. Uh, you know, a thing that they can see as you know the full spectrum of things that they're afraid of.
2: Well, uh, and it just from, the, from This is the same. Yeah, this is the same okay. folks that made the term liberal a dirty word and an awful word. And I mean, they, they all they do is is do this stuff with branding. And as you say, it goes under that one thing. And this is exactly what they're they're trying to do. We have a point man for this stuff in North Carolina. It's our Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson, who has made himself an adjunct really of the Donald Trump Republican Party by espousing these problems. And he doesn't want this stuff in the classroom and he's going to make sure that your kids are not taught this stuff. And he's he is the the, the bellwether here uh Mark Robinson some folks may not know who are watching outside of North Carolina he happens to be African American so he's been being given great cachet in conservative media on places like Fox News and other places he's being seen as a superstar because he's coming out against this he really is a a sledgehammer in this movement right Joe?
0: Well, I would take issue with the, like, like George Carlin would, I, I would take issue with the the phrase happens to be. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I think, First of all, like for, from a, from a literal standpoint, nobody happens to be anything you're, you know, as George Carlin says, we were both your parents black and they had a kid. And so you're black. Um, but, but also, but it's also important to note as you do that, you know, it, it is a lot easier to make somebody the front man against any sort, any, any variety of things that are racial, if they're black, it's just more effective. It's more effective than having, you know, an older white man doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, it, You know, that, that is a, that is a smart political move. If you're, if you're trying to argue for charter schools or um, you're trying to argue for, you know, defunding public universities, or you're trying to argue, you know, uh, for police and against the idea that there is a systemic, racism problem with police. It's a lot more effective if the person carrying the message is not white. Um, and so we have seen a number of people on the right elevated you know, to position two two very high positions who are not white, because that is more politically effective. And I mean, that's a smart move. That's what I would suggest that they do if I were in charge of trying to figure out how to, how to best get that message across. I, you know, all these all these white guys are not getting it done. You need to have a different face on this. So yeah, I, I, I do agree that he's he's been a voice and a face uh, for some of these things. And against some of these things that if you take, you know, surveys among black North Carolinians, you would find are not terribly popular with them.
2: How I, And I don't understand. Try to explain to everyone the rise of Mark Robinson, how he put himself in a position to be lieutenant governor. How, what was his well, previous I mean, experience?
0: Yeah, which is essentially none. Right. I mean, yeah. but this is a you know, this is a, a thing we're seeing. I mean, it's happening on the left, too. I mean, We're seeing a lot of people who never ran for dog catcher, who were never on their city council, who were never on their school board, who, you know, the first thing they want to do is be lieutenant governor. The first thing they want to do is be congressman. I mean, it happened with Mark Walker. Mark Walker you know, <laughs> positions in his church. He was never on the Greensboro City Council or the County Commissioners. He was never a, a you know a, a, even a high level functionary within his own party and he said, you know what, I should be in Congress. And you know what? He was in Congress. Now he's running for Senate. And I think that there's, you know, so that it's that Robert Lewis Stevenson who said that politics is perhaps the only profession for which no preparation is considered necessary. Mm-hmm. Um that's still true. It's still it's still true today. I mean people people think you know, I should be in this position because I think I should be in this position. And I think I can convince other people of that. Um, there we are. I mean, I think he, he sort of rose to prominence, I think, first. There's sort of a viral clip of him uh, speaking very passionately before the Greensboro Council. Yeah. Right. And but, but I mean, that, you know, that was happening 10 years ago, too. I mean, the people who are people who until recently were running the Guilford County uh, Board of Commissioners were people from a Tea Party group who, you know, rose up and made fiery yeah. speeches and never ran for anything. And then all of a sudden they were running. the. I mean, that's that's what happens. It happens on the left, too, to, to a lesser degree. I mean, there are some very prominent national uh, Democrats who really didn't have any governing experience who are now in the mix as well. I, I think it's, p- part of that is it's popular with both sides to um, you know, advance this idea that the problem is that there's this uh you know group of people who've been running everything who've been doing a terrible job so we should get somebody in there who haven't been part of that business as usual washington Raleigh crowd um and
1: uh, yeah the, uh, the the guy that we had for four years in Washington he hadn't been a politician either and uh, what a successful businessman can do when he uh, gets his hands on the presidency. I think we've all learned how important <laughs> yes. that is. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's a top national example, right? I mean, yeah.
2: Mark, yeah. The, yeah, the Mark Robinson clip was he spoke very passionately about the Second Amendment. It was a, some sort of very vitriolic and he was very impassioned. He had a, a great cheering section. And as you say, the clip has been picked up. It's gone viral, and all of a sudden, the next thing you know, it's who is this guy? And he's the he's the lieutenant governor in the state of North Carolina, and now he is the point man for I would I don't know the MAGA agenda, whatever you would call it, the Trump agenda. He would certainly say that he doesn't shy away from America First or Trumpism, and he's the he's the main point guy in the state for pushing that stuff to the folks.
0: I mean, politics is to some degree show business, right? I mean, the guy yeah. was the guy was singing for Journey recently. Uh, you know, they found him on YouTube too. I mean, it's you know, it's it's a uh, you know, you can, you can find talent in all sorts of places these days. And,
1: uh... hey, Joe, could you handicap for us or or give us a state of the the, the race view of uh, the United States uh, uh, Senate race? The Republicans have have three guys or so jockeying. You got Ted Budd endorsed by trump and on the the democratic side i get a ton of email from from all of them and there are yeah and and i have no sense i have no sense if there's a a a front runner or if anybody's paying attention yet or whether we're so all exhausted or we're just so excited to not have to wear masks if we've been vaccinated i I don't know where the state of of that race is
0: well i mean i think that I think it's going to be one of those big. Everybody's watching it. Races. It might be a little early for everybody to be paying attention, particularly as we're coming out of a, a pandemic. And as you say, there don't seem to be front runners. I mean, you know, the I, I think we're I think we're a little past the time when like one endorsement would make break something like this. Although, you know, I say that, and everything that you say about Donald Trump and politics could be wrong. Uh, there's nobody who's smart enough to to know exactly. Uh, you know, h- how things work when he is in the mix. I think that some of these folks are betting that that Trump endorsement will be everything and that if you didn't get it, then, you know, y- you're just you just don't have a shot. But, you know, I wouldn't <laughs> I, listen. I, I covered the the Mark Walker uh, race for the News and Observer. I'm sorry, for the News and Record back in the day when he was uh, running against Phil Berger Jr. in the primary and then in, in the general election. And, um I think people counted him out and counted him out early and uh, came to regret that. And I think that in the same way, uh, Pat McCrory didn't get that um, Trump endorsement that he wanted, but he's painting himself as, you know, more of a Trump ally than the gentleman who did. And so, you know, some of them are, I think to some degree, they're falling all over themselves to uh, try to paint themselves as the, the most Trump of the, of the folks on the, on the right. Um, The degree to which that will, be effective or be effective when the race is really and truly underway. Uh, We'll see Uh, any number of things could happen on the democratic side. You know, you've got this constant problem too of, you know, sort of a shakeup of how things have traditionally worked, right? I mean, we don't have party bosses going, it's the following person's turn anymore. Um, And, you know, it could be anybody's race based on, you know, and then, You never know. Occasionally there's a huge political scandal that blows your candidate out of the water, preferably before the race gets started rather than afterward. Um, But we've seen that happen in North Carolina, particularly at the at the the Senate level a number of times.
2: Mark Walker went to Washington in great measure for one reason alone. And in my estimation, it was because he was given the blessing of the Republican kingmaker in this area. And that was B.J. Barnes, who was then the sheriff of uh, Guilford County. He now finds himself, B.J., as the mayor of a town of, I think, twenty five hundred folks. So it is a different day. I don't I, I don't know how what the calculus was for Trump picking and endorsing Ted Budd. I don't know if you could sit down the agenda between Ted Budd, Mark Walker and Pat McCoy, if you could find an ounce worth of difference there. Does anybody know uh, what what made Donald Trump make this this grand proclamation that he was a Ted Budd
0: guy and that's going to be his dude? Well, I think to some degree, I mean, you, you never really know with Trump, right, because <laughs> the, the um, you're looking at. This is, you know, sometimes it seems as though these things are sort of spite. You know, he, he's perfectly willing to, in, to endorse a candidate who nobody thinks will win and who doesn't end up winning, you know, despite somebody who he thinks slighted him in some way. Uh, and, and other times it, it's very obvious that picks that he's making, especially very high level picks, uh, you know, are sort of uh, to shore up this idea that if he endorses you, you'll win. You know, if, if you bet the favorite and then he wins, you get to go see that's my that's my doing, um, and, you know. In this case, I don't. It's a little difficult to say which it might be. I mean, I think that um, Walker, to some degree, you know, he had an uphill climb in that congressional race, cause he's running against Phil Berger jr. Yeah. Uh, and the, you know, the son of a, a very, very successful and powerful North Carolina politician. And, uh, and, and also in his own right, a DA and somebody with a lot of name recognition, cause it's his dad's name, but he, he also has a name in politics. Mark Walker doesn't. Right. And does he, um, do I doubt that, you know, him having BJ Barnes support helped? No, but also he, you know, whatever else you think about Mark Walker, about his positions, about, you know, any number of things having to do with Mark Walker, you do have to say that he has a thing that is very powerful in politics, which is he can talk. I mean, Mm -hmm. he gets up there and, you know, spins you a story and, and, uh, you know, uh, gets on TV and, you know, positions himself in the right place. And he's also very good at these, um, these advertisements, you know, it's like, you look at his record, you wouldn't, Necessarily think that's the guy who does an advertisement where he's, you know, walking with a black pastor to stare in awe at the civil rights center, you know, in downtown Greensboro. Uh, but that's the ad, you know, and um, it's, uh, you know, I mean, he's he's got some he's got some real raw political skills, um, and I think that, that that does go that does go a ways. I mean, you know, you you can't say that about everybody, even everybody in this race. Uh, you know, some of them are, are, are in the right place on the issues for their party, or they're in the right place having uh, been connected to the right people for long enough. And, you know, whether that will mean more money and more success for them in the race, we'll see.
1: Uh, Joe, can you talk, and I don't think people realize it as much as an important thing that it is, the structural uh, barriers to Democrats winning, uh, the further down you go now because of gerrymandering and because it, when you have a, a state like North Carolina, or I think Wisconsin is the most gerrymandered state out there, With Pennsylvania was horrible. It's not quite as bad where uh, when you count up all the votes in the congressional elections, each two years, the Democrats will get 55%, 60% of the vote. And they'll have Thirty or forty percent of the seats. I mean, Mark Walker didn't run for re-election here in North Carolina because they they finally fixed uh, the district here so that he couldn't automatically win. So he said, "I'm going to retire and then come back and run for Senate," which you can't gerrymander a whole state. So I'll I'll I'll, I'll do it that way. Talk talk about the the the, the structural um, uh, barriers to Democrats. Winning, and of course, the biggest example of that is the U.S. Senate itself, because you know Wyoming has as many senators as California or or, or New York.
0: Yeah, I mean, how these maps get drawn and by whom, and um, and when, and, and based on what information, and and who wins legal fights over it—something we've been talking about in North Carolina for a very long time—and I think that it, um, you know, it continues to be important. My my former colleague Melissa Bouton at Policy Watch did an excellent, excellent piece called. Uh, I believe it was called the the, the, the gerrymanderer's daughter <laughs> the mapmaker's daughter I have to look back at it. anyway, she interviewed the daughter of the gentleman who recently passed but was you know sort of in charge of that effort for North Carolina Republicans for many years and how he did it and the breakdown of the maps and you know how as courts have found it was, it was sort of super targeting uh, having to do with race. Um, and so there's yeah there's this ongoing fight in North Carolina over that um and i think people don't some people don't realize just how important that is uh, you know people who are in charge of these processes and in charge of these processes when in the years when it matters you know when changes get made um you know are empowered to do this and and again it's one of those situations where you kind of have to uh, appreciate the candor right they're they're not making this legal argument in in fights but we've certainly seen people publicly um in court rather, but we've certainly seen people uh, at very high levels uh, in the Republican party and in the NCGA say, uh, yeah, we we are engineering these to be as friendly to Republicans as we possibly can. In order to do that, we are willing to do everything that we can and and argue that we should be able to do new stuff. So yeah, yeah, absolutely right. Um, you know, I mean, it gets, this idea gets thrown around all the time of having an independent commission that does this, this is redistricting. And this was very big among Republicans when they were not in power, by the way. Uh, You know, they're they're very, very hot on this. Um, And these days, some of those same folks, eh, not so much with the, you know, nonpartisan, bipartisan commission to, to do this. I think we're doing okay.
2: Well, in your estimation, and I'm kind of asking for an opinion here from you. Take off the reporter hat. Why do you think the Republicans have been ineffective at really tagging Roy Cooper and getting anything to stick to that guy? He has been able for a while now to kind of do what he needs to do. He's been a fairly popular governor and very uh, partisan times. Why, why do you think they haven't been able to, to effectively mount successful campaigns to just make things stick to that
0: guy? Well, I think to some degree, you have to have a thing that sticks. I mean, that is helpful. Um, if you can make the argument that, you know, as you could with Pat McCrory, for instance, that he's doing things that are, as as they did effectively with Pat McCrory, he's doing things that harm the state financially, that he's not popular. I mean, Pat McCrory's problem was he was too moderate for his own party you know, when, when he came in, he was, you know, not as far to the right as some of the folks at the NCGA would have liked him, Republicans, too far to the right for Democrats, so he didn't really have anywhere to go. You know, he's, he he was literally fighting legal battles with his own party while he was fighting battles with Democrats. And Roy Cooper just doesn't have that problem. I mean, are there people who think he's too moderate on things? Sure. Uh, you know, are there portions of the Democratic Party who'd like to see somebody else in that spot? Sure. But they're not there's not this overwhelming uprising uh, against him for that. And he's also, you know, he's been governor during some pretty huge crises, COVID-19 for instance, Um, but he hasn't put himself. I mean, you can, you can look at it in the, in, in the, the polling. I mean, you get the High Point University polling, you get the uh, Elon poll, you look at all these things and you'll see that, Governor is remaining popular because he's because he's his position where he is on positions is where most North Carolinians are, um, sometimes by a little bit, sometimes by a lot, um, but you know he scores a whole lot better uh, than do you know some of those NCGA leaders or congressional leaders, um, and you know therefore I mean you know is, is he a skilled politician? Can he can the guy give a speech? Can he you know articulate where he is on things that are complicated? Absolutely. Um, he's also not a, I mean, he's just, it's hard to paint him as a hard left guy in the same way. It was a little difficult to, to although he certainly bent over trying to, to paint uh, Pat McCrory as a hard right guy, because he had people coming at him from the hard right all the time.
2: You yeah. Know?
0: So uh, yeah, I think he's just in, I think he's in a better, a better position. I mean, also to some degree, it's helpful that Roy Cooper doesn't, I mean, I'm sure he wouldn't say this, but I think it's as an observer, I think it's helpful that he has a Republican opposition you know, it's, it, what we see is, you know, he, he's doing what he can as a governor through all the powers that he has remaining to him that have been stripped to do certain things. And also there's enough of a uh, there's there's an, there are enough seats in the North Carolina House and Senate that if he vetoes something, they can sustain it. And they, they haven't broken one of those yet. Uh, mm-hmm. He came with that. But he's not in the unenviable position that Pat McCrory was in, which is he comes in, his party is in power, and they can't agree amongst themselves what they should do with that right. and how far they can push it. You know, it's sometimes easier to maneuver in a state where the the power is shared than in a, a state where it's not shared. You have to fight amongst yourselves. That just makes everybody look bad. So.
2: But he's—I I think, by and large, Roy Cooper is boring, and I say that in the most—I I, I, I say that in the most loving terms possible. Because you would see, for four years, Donald Trump, you know you try to start a fight with an air particle he just swallowed and here's Roy Cooper over here and he's he's not going to throw flames or anything of the sort and there're just some people in your life who you want to be boring the guy that handles my 4 my 401k I want that guy to put me to sleep when I walk in the office the guy who handles my life insurance I don't I don't need him to be this flamboyant elvis type of character and Roy Cooper has just been this steady kind of guy that gets yeah. the job done you don't have to worry about him making the state look awful on, on in national news. There's no huge Mark Sanford type scandal coming with that guy. There's just nothing controversial about Roy Cooper, I, in, in my opinion, and that's really to his benefit.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a reason why you don't often see flamethrowers, be they Republican or Democrat, in, in that seat. Um, I mean, I think Pat McCrory, I think, sort of painted himself into a corner where he had to defend a bunch of stuff that just a few years earlier, or when he was mayor of Charlotte, you know, he wouldn't have been doing um, just for political reasons. But uh, you know, that's a that's a position that is elected statewide. It, you know, you're not you're not you don't have to appeal to Carteret County. You don't have to appeal to Guilford appeal to Guilford County or Wake County or Durham. You have to appeal to the whole state. And it, a, a centrist Democrat will have an easier time doing that than somebody who is farther left. And a centrist Republican will have an easier time doing that than somebody who's really far the right. right. Well,
1: you know, McCrory was was mayor of, of Charlotte when when. I was on the radio in Charlotte the first time, nineteen ninety-nine, two thousand. And remember, he was a Republican mayor, a popular Republican mayor who kept getting reelected in Democratic Charlotte. Yeah. So he really yeah. did have something going on and, and I guess he, he he kinda he kinda lost it. Can we can we end on something that's positive positive piece of news mm-hmm. today? It was at the top of the New York Times late this morning that it looks like it may very well be possible that the vaccines may have long-term effectiveness no boosters all kinds of meantime here in north carolina i think we're what 12th from the bottom mm-hmm. in the number of uh, people percentage-wise who have been vaccinated you know we're not all the way at the bottom but we're we're darn close so when they talk about all oh, the southern states about we don't get included in it we probably should be um how have we done? Have have we done as much as we can? Or have we reached critical mass where the people who have not been vaccinated and don't want to be vaccinated, doggone it, they're not going to be vaccinated? Or is there any trick that we haven't thought of? We've tried bribery. We've tried cajoling. We've tried begging. We've tried bringing in a president of the United States.
0: What is left? Well, I mean, I think you're sort of Lay it out well there, right? I mean, what can we try? We're we <laughs> we have a lottery, you know. We're 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 uh, have you know businesses are giving things away if you get vaccinated, the, you know. The short of of uh, you know mandating it, which I don't think we can do with this particular one. Uh, you know, it's. I mean, my, I come from a military background. My dad was a career marine. My grandfathers were in the navy. They had to get vaccinated constantly for everything, particularly if they were going overseas. Um, my dad is retired now. Was a little shocked to hear that there was a real low level of adoption among the United States Marine Corps. You know, it's been politicized, and and they have a choice because this is not something that it was an emergency approval by the FDA. So, you know, we're we're, uh, giving people choices, and he he just thought, number one, would I ever choose not to get vaccinated against something like this? No, I wouldn't. I you know I didn't, even though I'm retired, Um, and also it's just not something that I thought about during my military career. Once you politicize something to this degree, it's very difficult to make to make arguments to people based on reason and get them to, to listen. It's very difficult to – I mean, they say the most effective thing is knowing somebody. If you know somebody who got sick and you saw them go through it, it becomes more real to you. Um, if you saw somebody have really negative consequences – I mean, unfortunately, it also works the other way. I've certainly seen people who got COVID, got sick, got over it and went, see – don't need a vaccine. Um, and, and, and have had people, you know, agree with that assessment as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, you know, I got vaccinated as soon as I could. So did my wife, so did basically everybody in my family. Um, and we'd all like to get back to some semblance of normal, but I mean, I think what, one of the things that this pandemic has really exposed is this idea that people are, uh, you know, if you give them the opportunity that they'll all pull together in, in, in one direction. Well, I mean, if you politicize something like this, even something like getting vaccinated is, you know, and unfortunately I think we also forget, I mean, we're making it all about COVID-19, but there was a a strong strain of anti-vax sentiment in this country before that. I mean, you know, I, I, We have we I don't personally have kids, but I have people in my family and in my circle of friends who have kids who have been worried about mumps and things coming back, you know, and all sorts of instances where, um, you know, we're seeing diseases we shouldn't be seeing because people were not willing to vaccinate their kids. I, I know people who live in. Uh, you know, in, in Oregon, and parts of Washington, who are upset because they couldn't even get fluoride in the water there. You know, it's yeah. people where, you know, it's like the, the tinfoil hat brigade who thinks it's going to control their thoughts, get together with the foodies who don't want it to affect their craft beer. And all of a sudden, you know, no, no, flu- no fluoride in the water. I mean, forget vac- forget vaccinations. I mean, it's, it's, um, so there, there is that strain always in the American character. And also we have a number of uh, historical things we could look to, not just, you know, the, the 19, not, not not just the, uh, 1913, 1918, you know, but also, you know, one of the things that was really struck me is I finally got around to reading that Ron Chernow book, Hamilton, that the the Lin-Manuel Miranda ended up basing the musical on. And in there, there's this, uh, thing that didn't make its way into the musical, but, uh, this yellow fever descended on the country. Right. And it's killing people and it's, you know, it's just this terrible plague, and people don't know what to do with it. And Hamilton and his family got sick. And the conventional medical wisdom at the time was to do X thing. And it was not working. And they talked to another doctor who had seen this kind of thing in the Caribbean and, and had this whole other method of, you know, here's what, here's what I think you should be doing. And they went that way and they got better. And so he became, he and his family became kind of like, uh, you know, evangelical about this new, you know, here's what you should be doing. You know, th- this way that we've been looking at disease previously is, is wrong. We should be looking at, and it became heavily politicized to the point that because Hamilton was for it, a number of people were against it on that basis. I'm not doing whatever it is that <laughs> Hamilton said, right? And that's, at the, I mean, that's at the the very beginnings of our country, you know, and, and yeah. there's, a, there's this enormous medical crisis and it gets politicized in, in a, in a, a way that is, has deep echoes here. So, I mean, you know, I, I think, Sometimes it's I think people some people find that depressing to hear that, that, you know, it's, that this has been with us always. And it's not. But I actually find it a little comforting that we're not especially cursed to be living in this time. Everybody. I think people see things and they go like, oh, God, this is the worst it's ever been. And, you like, well, I mean, actually, this is about how it's been, uh, you know, for, for a very, very long time. It's just we have the Internet now.
1: Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, Joe, we really greatly appreciate you spending some time with us today here we, we covered a lot of ground um, and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll say it again I think you're the best I really think you're the best and we do your uh, good work appreciate you having do, me
2: do, do your plugs uh, where people can find you on social media and where people can find your work and, and check you out
0: sure uh, well I, I write for NC Policy Watch that's uh, ncpolicywatch.com uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Joe Killian J-O-E-K-I-L-L-I-A-N-P-W for Policy Watch Joe Killian P W. Um, today, I'm reporting on the uh, reports from board of trustees members that there will, in fact, be a, a vote on Nicole Hannah Jones's tenure uh, that we're expecting to happen on Wednesday. There's not been an official announcement yet, but I've got that from members of the board of trustees and also UNC source who's directly involved. So we'll we'll see if they if they uh, announce something today. They would need to because there's a there's an announcement. Uh, it needs to happen a certain number of hours before a meeting.
1: Is that a public vote? I mean, will we know who voted which way, or is it just you know numbers that we find out?
0: All votes on this kind of thing are publicly announced. So um, even even if there was a uh, a vote in closed session for personnel reasons or whatever in a in a uh, an actual committee, uh, they will have to announce the vote and they will have to hold hold the full board vote uh, should there be one um, publicly.
1: All right, Joe, take care. Best of your family. Thanks. Good to see that the, they got vaccinated there early on. What have you done in the last few months that uh, you didn't think a year ago you'd be able to do? Have you been to any concerts or have been to any sporting events? I haven't been to any friends?
0: concerts or sporting events, but my wife and I had our 12th anniversary over the weekend and we went to our favorite restaurant and ate on the patio. Nice. And that was, you know, we've just begun being outside and eating at a restaurant again. We've been very slow. I mean, I have some lung problems of my own. My, my wife had had uh, some problems with blood clots in her lungs. So our, our doctors were, were both uh, you know very, very uh, frank with us about how serious it would be if we caught this. So we've been very, very careful for more than a year. So yeah, like just eating dinner on a patio is, with my wife has been remarkable.
1: Joe, thank you again. Thank you.